Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. So today on the podcast, we continue our series called The Meaning of Sight, where we're looking at how we see, how we understand the world around us, how we can see better, but also the things that make us blind. And on that note, the title of today's message is The Best Way to Become Blind. Hey, just a quick announcement that we've got a church picnic coming up at the end of September. September 30th, we'll be out at the Boga Fly Park. We've got music, bring your lawn chairs and some food, and we're going to have a good time. So for now, let's go ahead and head to North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. You know, back in the early 2000s, long before there was a Facebook or a Twitter or iPhones or other smartphones, uh, what did we do with all that time in between things? You know, like when you're stuck in line at Walmart or the bank or you're at a restaurant waiting for somebody to show up. Like, what did we do? You just, like, sit there? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Back in the early 2000s, I remember I used to actually, like, visit web pages, like, just for fun. Like, I don't visit web pages anymore unless I'm paying a bill or looking for the news. But back before social media, like, websites had to be pretty good, like, or, or else you wouldn't look at them. And they had to be interesting. And so I had a handful of websites that I would commonly look at throughout the week. And one of those websites was a site uh, called Lark News. Did anybody remember Lark News? It's a very small subgroup of people. All right. Floyd's representing. Lark News was was pretty cool because it was this website kind of like The Onion. The Onion does satirical stories about current events. And Lark News was like that, except instead of current events, it was satire on Christian culture. And they were really good at it. They they ran a story one time uh, called about a church in Las Vegas that was struggling on the edges of town. They, they didn't have enough people, and their finances were in trouble. And so they decided to move into downtown Las Vegas on the Strip, open up a little outreach. And so they got some slot machines, and, um, and people just started coming in. It was so successful that they leased the spot next door and got a roulette table and some blackjack tables. And so they're interviewing the pastor, and he said, Yeah, you know, I mean... At one point, it was so successful, people coming in, we just stopped having services altogether. We just kind of pray for people as they play. And the good thing is, because it's a church, anything you, you lose is tax deductible. And, and he said, you know, we, we even have been known to, on occasion, even refund somebody's money if they just lost a whole lot here. Because, you know, we're Christians. And uh, they called it Covenant Casino. And... <laughs> And they, like, had this Photoshop picture that, that looked like the, the clubs on the strip in, in Las Vegas. At Covenant Casino and shiny, lit-up letters. Uh, there was that one. Then they did another story about how, you know, the, one, of the, one of the problems in churches, I know we don't have this problem here, but other churches you go to, they have a worship leader. And that worship leader may be really good, 
But after a while, it's the same old worship leader doing the same old songs that they like to do. And sometimes you want to shake it up. Well, don't fear. A company has invented an animatronic worship leader. <laughs> kind of like the, the things you see in It's a Small World or something at Disneyland. Uh, <laughs> praise the Lord. Uh, the, the, and, and this animatronic worship leader, it can sing like hill songs or Bethel, you can have the stop. It has thousands of songs to choose from, so your congregation never gets bored with the same old thing, and your pastor never has to get mad at the worship leader, which is a very common thing in ministry, by the way. I just stay mad at myself all the time. So, so these stories were they were they were funny, they were satire, and and what was good about them? I mean, the best satire is something that is pretty over the top, but not totally unbelievable, and they were good at like hitting that sweet spot, and. As much as I liked the Lark News stories, what I really liked was how I could use these to prank other people who didn't know it was a satire site. That used to be all the rage a few years ago, but now with all the fake news out there, it's like, eh, everything's fake. Um, and not satire. <laughs> it's, just, it's just fake and mean and <laughs> slanderous. Uh, so back, back at that point, I, I, my, I had this band for six years called Mary's Den, and we had a a website, and on our website, we had the precursor of social media, which was called a message board, and remember message boards, anyone? Yes, message boards, that was the stuff, and so we had this message board, and on the message board, we, people would put little comments and conversations, and, and we had this one particular member of our band who was prone to expressing his righteous indignation on a plethora of moral issues, and he was also a little gullible, so perfect candidate to prank. So I would get on the message board, and I would post this story about Covenant Casino, and I would just sit back and eat popcorn and wait for him to get the show going. And he would get on there. He goes, I can see Jesus coming in and turning over the tables. And he was just, this is a decline of Western civilization in the church. And, and I'm just going, yeah. And I would let him go for a few days or weeks. And um, <laughs> anyway, it was a lot of fun. But at one point, I actually got an idea for a story to submit to Lark News because you could submit something, and if it was good enough, they would run it. So I wrote my own satirical piece. At the time, I was noticing all across America there was the the rise and proliferation of of megachurches. I mean, in the early 2000s, they were blowing up everywhere. I mean, even here. And at the same time, there was also another phenomenon going on in culture, which was called American Idol. And in the first few years of American Idol, it was like... I mean, that's the most watched show on TV. And so I came up with this article about a a singing competition that would, uh, you know, some of the best worship leaders from across the nation would compete to see who is America's top worship leader. And it was called American Worship Idol. (laughs) I thought it was pretty good. And so I sent the story in, and a few days later, Lark News gets in touch with me, and they said... It's well-written, good, good piece, but we're, we're a satire site. We don't run true stories. I'm like, what? <laughs> they said, this thing that you wrote about, it actually exists on Christian TV. <laughs> and it went from, like, f- funny to, like, oh, my gosh, this is sad. <laughs> this thing that I thought was just a ridiculous, like, like you would have worship leaders competing to who like it's it's so ridiculous and it actually existed. If I would have just thought of that idea a little bit sooner, 
<laughs> it would have been my ticket out of here. <laughs> but I thought that that that, that, that little scenario was, was like really a picture of like what's wrong. I mean, something's wrong in the church and in society. The, the idolatry of the world that we live in. Which brings me to where I'm actually going. Today, we're going to continue our series called The Meaning of Sight. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how we see, how we understand the world around us, what goes into that, but also how we can be made blind. Last week, I talked about one of the ways that we become blind is when we get a a big two-by-four in our eyes, and we're trying to fix the other people around us, the the little specks in their eyes, but every time we go to fix them, the two-by-four in our eye bumps them in the head, and Jesus says, "Take take the log out of your eye before you go try to fix other people. And that's, that's one way to start seeing better. But today I want to talk about the best way to go blind. If you want to go blind, you're in the right place today. Because we're going to tell you the best way you can go blind. On the front of your bulletin, Psalm 115 says this. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. I think I cut that last line off. So will all who trust in them. The psalmist, the, these ancient song lyrics have a, one of the most profound statements about idolatry that you can find in the whole Bible. And that is, if you worship an idol, it's the, the quickest way to become insensitive, to become blind, to lose your feeling, to lose touch with the divine and the goodness of God through idolatry. Now, we can all breathe a sigh of relief because if you've grown up in America, chances are you have never walked into a temple filled with idols, right? I mean, idolatry is, is pretty much extinct in the Western world. I mean, yeah, I mean, I went to India to, in, back in 2006, and there's still idolatry over there. I mean, there's like 30 million deities in Hinduism, and everywhere you'd walk, uh, there, there'd be idols on the street. People had idols in their homes. There was temple filled with idol, temples filled with idols. But in America, it's like idols. Yeah, we, we've moved past that. We're highly evolved. We got this thing together. <laughs> but the reality is, idolatry... You know, in its classical sense, you would actually build a statue and you would worship the statue, but idolatry really has to do with our understanding of God and what we think about that, how we interact with God. Eugene Peterson, in his wonderful book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, says this. An idol is God, little g God, with all the big g God taken out. God depersonalized. God derelationalized. 
a God that we can use and enlist and fantasize without ever once having to receive or give love. The essence of idolatry is depersonalization. The idol is a form of divinity that requires no personal relationship. The idol is a form of divinity that I can manipulate and control. The idol reverses the God-creature relationship. Now, I'm the God, and the idol is the creature. We could just end it there, but I want to give you your money's worth today if you gave him the offering. <laughs> If you think of classical idolatry, you know, the kind that existed in ancient times, here's, here's the way, and, and it existed all over the world, but here's what you would do. If you were about to go into battle, you would find the deity in charge of winning wars, and you would go make sacrifices to that idol. If you were trying to have a baby or if you wanted to, to have a good harvest in your crops, you would go make sacrifices to the goddess of fertility. If you were starting a new business venture, you would find the God in charge of luck and success and financial blessing, and you would make an offering there. But what's common in all these things is you're really not in relationship with the gods or the divine. You're objectifying them, right? I mean, we know what objectification is, right? You know, I mean, when you, when you treat somebody as an object and you just want something from them, but you don't want a relationship with them, idolatry is really the objectification of God. And I look at so many of the things that, that Christians believe in modern-day America, like the, the prosperity gospel. I think that's the idolatry of God. I think there's some, there's some truth in there a bit, but if your whole theology is like, if I do this and this and this, then God's going to do this. Are you, are you not just objectifying God? You're not just making an idol? Are you really having a relationship with God? Or is it just about what you want? Eugene Peterson, the guy who wrote that quote here, I was actually, he was on uh, the podcast uh, On Being last week, and I, I was listening. I, such a wise dude. Uh, and he said, you know, he said something about prayer. He says, you know, most people think that prayer is about telling God what we want, but he said, really, true prayer is about listening to God. It's about listening. I, I, I grew up, you know, my first two, 10 years, you know, I was in very kind of word of faith, charismatic traditions, and uh, faith was like this thing that you had to stir up, like, like, have a faith rally inside, and if you just believe enough, then God's going to bless you, and God's going to give you what you want, but the longer I go on in my journey, I'm, I, I'm getting to where I don't care for the term faith so much because I think it is misused so often when what is often called for in our lives is trust. See, listening speaks of trust, doesn't it? You listen to people you trust. Prayer is not telling God all the, the big laundry list of everything we want God to do on our behalf. It is actually submitting to the Lord, trusting our lives to God's care, being in a posture of listening, participating with what the divine is doing. When we, when we have idolatry in our hearts, we objectify God. And guess what? Like Eugene Peter says, we put ourselves in the place of God, and we put God in the place of the creature. That role is reversed. Want to know why so much stuff is jacked up in our world today? That very reason. 
C.S. Lewis wrote one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books called Screwtape Letters. If you haven't heard of Screwtape Letters, it's, I don't even know how somebody thinks of this. This is a brilliant idea, and he fulfilled it well. It's a, it's a conversation between two demons. One is named Uncle Screwtape, and he's the elder demon, and he is, is, has an apprentice demon named Wormwood. And he's, he's counseling him. It's like a, a letter, a correspondence letter is going back and forth. And Wormwood is trying to, to, he's got this subject that he's trying to turn away from God and lead to destruction. And so, and this is all happening in England around the time of World War II. And so, here's a quote from Screwtape Letters. Uncle Screwtape is, is speaking to Wormwood about the subject. He says, whichever your subject ab- adopts, whether patriotism or pacifism, Your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of a partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. C.S. Lewis is a pretty smart dude. I've noticed, I've read several things recently, modern uh, social psychology research is really beginning to conclude that about half the people in the world are wired with more of a basis towards security, um, a basis, a bias towards security, and about half the people in the world are wired with a bias towards tolerance. That's it's the, the Democrats and the Republicans. I mean, we see this, but it, it, it kind of breaks down because those two strategies for survival, like, have benefited civilization, and, and, and you need both. The problem is in our modern world, you know, the, the security side were like, we don't need any of you flaming liberals and the, and the, the, the you know, tolerance-oriented people are like, man, why do y'all want to rain on our parade? You know, we don't need walls or buildings. And the, the reality is you need security and you need tolerance because you go to any extreme, you know, on, on the security extreme, you can have a, a form of tyranny that is fascist. But on the left side, you can have another form of tyranny in trying to be tolerant that becomes just as oppressive. But it's interesting what Wormwood, I mean, uh, Uncle Screwtape is saying to Wormwood, he's seizing on that thing within humanity. Whether it's patriotism that you're into or pacifism, let that person begin to attach those ideas to their religion to the point where those biases become the most important part of their religion. What do you have there? You have an idol. Patriotic Jesus. Or hippie Jesus. <laughs> you know? Will the real Jesus step forward, please? Author Anne Lamott said this, You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. Just meditate on that this week. How much of our view of God is just our own biases, our preference for what we want to God to be like that backs up everything in our life so that we never actually have to do anything to change. 
God hates the same people we do, loves the same people we do. God loves the issues that we love. That's probably an idol, y'all. It's probably an idol. This last week, um, I, <laughs> oh, before I get into that, <laughs> I, 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 I found it's become quite trendy for people to say this. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I mean, I've probably even said it, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I totally get it. I get why somebody would say that. Because religion, so often to us, whether it's Baptist or Catholic or Vineyard or whatever, whatever form of religion you're into, can feel so often that it's just a bunch of rules and doctrines and dogmas and rituals and you do these things, but it doesn't feel like you're actually engaging with the divine. And I think oftentimes, you know, we have experiences in the world outside of, you know, Sunday morning where we, you know, we, we experience transcendent when we're looking up at the, at the stars at night. We, we experience God's presence and conversations and things like that. But sometimes church just doesn't feel like that, that vital exchange with the Spirit. And so people say, yeah, man, I'm giving up on organized religion. I'm spiritual, but not religious. And I get why people do that. I totally get it. <laughs> But here's the problem. I, I, I find that so often people that go down the spiritual but not religious road, what they actually mean is I'm just compiling the little bits and pieces I like from all these things into an amalgamation of what I want to call God. But it's really not about trusting in God at all. It's just really about getting something, some spirituality that feels good. It's just another form of idolatry. You reject one form for another. Because the central issue in all of this is, is really, are you surrendered? Have you surrendered your will? Have you let go? Have you trusted your life to God? So whether you're spiritual or not religious, have you trusted God? Have you surrendered to God? Whatever your God is beyond religion. Or if you're in religion, have you surrendered to God? I would say Overwhelming majority of people that go to church on a Sunday morning probably aren't really living, trusting God or surrendering to God. And majority of people who say spiritual but not religious aren't even having any contact with God. This last week I started reading the uh, big book, AA, for the first time. Um, I've just, I've, I kept... I keep coming across stories about uh, Bill W., Bill Wilson, the founder of AA. Fascinating story. And so I'm like, I want to read his book. So I started it this last week, and it's interesting because Bill Wilson, he was not your functional alcoholic. He was a mess. I mean, he was hospitalized on a few occasions, like locked in an asylum kind of, like, drunk. <laughs> and he was finally in a, in a hospital in... in Great Britain, uh, getting treated once again for another bender he had on alcohol, and he had a mystical religious experience with God. He grew up nominally Catholic. It never really meant much to him. He never really had a, a, an encounter with God, but there in the hospital, he had this encounter with the divine that changed his life. And it was actually out of that experience that he 
he began working on this model of recovery that would one day end up becoming the 12 steps. Now, I got to tell you, I've, I've got a lot of friends that over the years that have been in AA, but oftentimes I find with a lot of people in AA, they kind of minimize the God parts of it. You know, it's like, uh, and I was struck when actually looking, reading the AA big book this week, how much God is a part of that thing. Like, if you take the God stuff out, you've considerably considerably knocked down what the steps are. In fact, when you read the first few chapters of the big book, you find, like, that is key to your recovery. Why? Because the reason you're addicted and you're doing things you don't want to do and you're driven by these compulsions is because you're still bound to your own will. You're still trying to run your own dang life as if you can figure that out. What's the, what's the definition? You know, insanity is you do the same thing over and over, getting the same results. Maybe if I try it one more time, it's going to work this time. Maybe this time. I'm just going to have two drinks this time. That's it. That's, <laughs> it don't work. What is compromised is your very will. Your will is broken. It's not leading you right down, down the right path. You keep going from one messed up dysfunctional relationship to another. You keep fighting addictions. You keep having these things pop up in your life over and over again. You keep trying to do the same things over and over again and end up in the same place. The problem is you, your will. You think you can run your life. And Bill Wilson stumbled onto something through his his, his encounter with God that he... To, to truly get out of the mess he was in, it would require surrender. I want to I read the 12 steps to you real quick. It won't take long. Listen to how much God pops up. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of characters. Step seven, We humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, made a list of persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, made direct amends to such people whenever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Step ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong promptly admitted it. Step eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. A lot of God stuff there, huh? See, whether you're in recovery or you just want to experience transformation, which, by the way, 
quoting Gerald May, a famous uh, psychologist, he said, every human being is an addict in the truest sense of the word. Every one of us. You might think, I, I never had a problem with drinking or drugs. Yeah, well, you probably are addicted to things like what other people think of you or money or possessions or whatever. We all have these tendencies. The, 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 and this is part of the blessing of, of, a, of a bottoming out alcoholic. At least they realize that. At least they get stripped of their illusions. At least they get stripped of, of like, I'm broken. Many people never actually enter into transformation because they never get to that point because most of the stuff they do is socially acceptable. And society will just let them do that. Whether you're in recovery or whether you want to experience transformation, you got to let go. You got to trust. You got to surrender to God. You don't get down the road unless that happens. Too often we treat Christianity as if it is primarily about having the right beliefs and doctrines. I love the, the wisdom of, of AA that it's like, just surrender your life to God as best you understand who God is. <laughs> it doesn't even say, like, try to figure out who God is. Just, hey, start with what you know of God and surrender to God. Like, even if, you're, even if your understanding of God is just messed up and, you, you know, just start there. Just take a step. Towards God, take your hands off your life and surrender to God as you understand God. You know, last week I, I shared a little bit of my story how, you know, when I came to faith at, at age 20, I was in a very dark place. I was actually, you know, seriously contemplating ending it all. And there in my living room, depressed and just ready to either end it all or run away, I just said a simple prayer to the Lord. I said, God, I don't know why you'd take me, but if you will, I'm yours. In that moment, I felt the love of God in a powerful way. It was life-changing. It didn't solve all my problems. It was just, it was like step three in AA. You know, I realized... Uh, I came to realize that my life was out of control and unmanageable. Step two, I realized that, the, that there was maybe a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. Step three, I surrendered my life to the care of my creator. As I understood God at that moment. I can look back over the last, um, you know, since I've been a Christian, since that, that first prayer that I prayed to the Lord at 20 years old, and I've had a handful of mystical religious experiences. I mean, not just, I mean, where I actually like sense God in a, in a very powerful way. I wish I could do that every day. <laughs> Probably wouldn't leave the house. And when I look back at, at these handful of experiences that I've had in my life, they've all happened in very different contexts, in very different seasons of my life where different things were going on. I remember the first, you know, I, I shared about this a few times, that, but when I was two years into to Christianity, I was highly disciplined, ready to just, I mean, I, I'd get up every morning, read my three chapters out of the Bible, read my devotional, put worship music on while I'm taking a shower, go to church, pray for an hour. I was involved in everything you could, and by the end of two years, I was just burned out. Like, it wasn't working. I'm like, Jesus, is this the, the, the life you called me for? And I remember that morning I came to church, 
and I went up for the prayer at the end. It was a very charismatic church. People prayed a lot of crazy charismatic prayers. I mean, nothing happened, but somebody gently put their hand on my back and quietly prayed a prayer. I don't even remember what they prayed. I couldn't hear them. And the power of God came on me so strong that I ended up like laying on the floor of this church for, I don't know, 20 minutes or something. And I had a vision of Jesus. I, I saw a like, vision of my heart was ripped in two. I saw Jesus' arms come off the cross, and he grabbed my heart, and he began telling me about this situation that happened when I was in high school that I didn't, even, I didn't know anything about therapy or, you know, deal, I, I, I was not terribly introspective at the time. And God was just showing me, like, this situation, that's where you stop trusting people. You got hurt. Not only that, you stopped trusting me. So I'm, I'm laying on the floor. I have this vision. I have this vision that God grabs my heart and then hands it back to me. And it's not ripped anymore. It's whole. And God's telling me this stuff about this thing in high school. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. I get up. I, I'm not kidding. I felt intoxicated. I had to have somebody drive me home. It was the craziest thing ever. Best thing ever. And when I got home, I remember it was a fall day. And... You know, things are kind of dreary in Louisiana in the fall. It was kind of overcast. But for me, it was like that when, in The Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to technicolor. Like, the, everything was on it. I was like, I felt healed. I was a different person. And right after that experience, I tried to make that experience happen again and again for years after. And I never could replicate it. Because, you know, the one thing that was common in all these experiences that I've had with God in my life that were profound and life-changing, the one thing that was common was surrender. I was in a desperate place. That morning, I was ready to quit. I was ready to quit. And when I look at the times where I've experienced God the most, that's been the thing. I'm ready to quit. And God's like, I was wondering how long it was going to take, how long you were going to keep trying to do the same thing and expecting different results. See, we like strategies for the spiritual life, like do this and do this and do this, and God's going to do this. But, you know, the, the, main thing, the main thing Christianity is about, the first step is surrender. It's trust. Pick up your cross and follow me. When you look at recovery, the, the key to recovery, the key to actually changing your life, submitting your life to God, like that's the first step. It's the first step. And you know what? You're probably going to have to come back to that step a few more times in your life. Even as a pastor, I've had to come back to that step a few times in the last year. God, take my hands off. I surrender. Whatever the outcome, I know, I trust that your goodness and your love is holding this whole thing together. I have nothing to be afraid of. And all I have to lose is Whatever pathetic mess I've made of my life, I trust you. I trust you. I surrender. I take my hands off. See, see, much of Christianity, true spirituality, it's not about doing stuff. It's about the stuff you don't do. It's about letting go. It's about listening. <laughs> it's about learning to just be. And I think that this is, you know, when, when we look at the spiritual disciplines in life, whether it's giving, 
whether it's prayer, service, community, those are just ways that we stay mindful of what is important. They're not a formula to get what you want from God. They're actually a way to stay more mindful of God. This whole trying to get stuff from God thing is what gets us so off track. And we end up with these idols, these versions of God that aren't the real thing. I've been living in the mind of a junkie, thinking my junkie thoughts, putting out my selfish aspirations, and not letting God into my heart. So for the reflection today, I want you to reflect on your own understanding of God and ask yourself how much your understanding of God is based simply on your own preferences and biases and what you want for God. Think about that this week. When it comes to the way you think about God, is it primarily a manifestation of your projections of all the things you'd like God to be like and like God to like and like God to hate? Or are you in a place of surrender? In what ways do I need to turn my life over to the loving care of God today? Now, if you're in here this morning and... You know, maybe you need to surrender afresh today. You don't even necessarily need to do it here at North Shore Vineyard on a Sunday morning. Maybe, like me, 25, 26 years ago, maybe you just need to get real honest with God at home. Think about the ways you're trying to control your life. Think about the ways that, that you have your hands tightly clenched on everything. And ask God for the grace to, to trust him. Ask God for the grace to pry your fingers off of all the things you're doing and actually surrender to him, to let go. If you ask that, I'll ask the same for me. Why don't you all stand up? not texting. I just want you all to know that. The message really rocked it this morning. Just want to let you know. <laughs> Lord, we we do ask this morning for your grace to let go and to trust you, Lord. Lord, Lord, we want to experience transformation. We want to look like you. We want to experience your goodness and love. Lord, not just as, as mere ideas, but as a reality in our lives, God, in our relationships, God, even in the way that we see ourselves, Lord. 
Lord, whatever that thing is within us that, that just uh, won't loosen its grip, Lord, we ask, we ask for the grace to let go and to trust you, Lord. We trust our lives into your care today, God. We entrust our lives to the loving care of our creator. You are a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity, that can put us back together. As we sang earlier today, God, broken people, we can be made whole, Lord. We believe it. Lord, we entrust our lives to you today. I just want to close by reading... I'm praying this, the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Well, if you need some prayer, come on up, and we would love to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless. Go pick up your kids. <laughs>